Father, as we come before you, God, uh, we are asking you to uh, bless our hearts, open our ears, our hearts, and our minds as we hear your word. We've already had the opportunity with the wonderful singing to praise you, and and, uh, it gives us an idea what heaven is going to be like when we're in your presence. So, Lord, uh, your word has things in it for each one of us. And Phil will be talking to the men specifically today, God. And there's things that we need to learn. There's things, each one of us, me included, that maybe we think we know. But there's better things that you have in store for us, God. So give us understanding and uh, uh, open our hearts and minds. And also the ladies and and everyone that is here will go away with something. You have prepared uh, Phil with this message. So we look forward to it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Dean. One of the finest moments in cinematic history came about in the middle of a movie called Crimson Tide in the 90s. If you've not seen that movie, I don't want to run the plot for you. I'll just simply tell you that Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington are the stars of it. Gene Hackman is the commander of a nuclear submarine and Denzel is his executive officer. They end up in the middle of a, a quite heady controversy that sets the plot for the whole rest of the movie. And like I said, I won't spoil it for you. I really do enjoy this movie, though. My sons do also, and we have watched it over and over and over again. And when we come to this particular scene, it never fails to inspire us. Never. I thought about all kinds of different ways to illustrate for you what happens in this scene, and finally I just thought, I got to show it to you. I can't do it any justice. You just have to see it for yourself. We haven't used a video clip for a long time in church, and so I'm I'm happy to do that today. This well, this is just good stuff. What's this? Mr. Cobb, yes, sir. You're wearing the name of the ship, aren't you, Mr. Cobb? Very aware, sir. It bears a proud name, doesn't it, Mr. Cobb? Very proud, sir. It represents fine people. Very fine people, sir. We live in fine, outstanding state. Outstanding, sir. In the greatest country in the entire world. In the entire world, sir. And what is that name, Mr. Cobb? Alabama, sir. And what do we say? Go, Bama! Roll time! Chief of the boat. Dismiss the crew. Dismiss the crew! Aye, aye, sir! Crew! Department heads! Attention your department! Follow! Gives me every time. I love it. My wife would tell you that no matter where she's at in the house, when the boys and I are watching that, she can hear us quoting right along with them the entire scene. It is an inspiring, inspiring thing to watch. I love the way he rallies his troops and gets them so excited about the mission that they have that they will run out in the middle of a rainstorm to try to cram themselves down that little tiny hole. No matter how long they have to stand in line in the middle of the driving rain, they are that worked up about what they're doing. Hackman did a great job. Commander did a great job. I found myself thinking about that scene in the month of May while we were doing our Proclaim the Word program. 
You might remember if you were around at all during the month of May that we had set our sights on reading the entire Word of God, Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end, cover to cover, out loud as a church. And we did it. It took us 28 days, six hours a day, but we did it. It was fantastic. Well, I was here late one night. I had signed up for the last section that we had that evening without paying attention to the passage of Scripture I was going to be reading. The only thing that caught my attention was the 11.30 to 12 o'clock time slot. Tina had signed up for the one before that, so we had come together and we were reading in different spots. When I got back into the prayer room and saw the passage that I was going to be reading, I, I just was almost a little disheartened, but then kind of encouraged that I drew this number and not other people. And let me show you why. I was reading from the book of First Chronicles chapter 6 through 8. Now, if you want to turn to chapter 6, I'm going to read with you just the first 14 verses, and you can see what I was in for. Here we go. First Chronicles chapter 6, verse 1. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Moriah. The sons of Kohath, Amran, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The children of Amran, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. The sons of Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Eleazar was the father of Phinehas, Phinehas the father of Abishua, Abishua the father of Buki, Buki the father of Uzai, Uzai the father of Zariah, Zariah the father of Merioth, Merioth the father of Amariah, Amariah the father of Ahitub, Ahitub the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Ahamaz, Ahamaz the father of Azariah, Azariah the father of Johanan, Johanan the father of Azariah, it was he who served as priest in the temple of Solomon, built in Jerusalem. Azariah, the father of Amariah. Amariah, the father of Ahitub. Ahitub, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Shalom. Shalom, the father of Hilkiah. Hilkiah, the father of Azariah. Azariah, the father of Sariah. And Sariah, the father of Jehozadak. That's just 14 of the verses. I had three chapters, six through eight. Now, if you've been with us worshiping for very long at all, you know that I repeatedly say, don't just skip over the genealogies. There are great things contained within them, but still I know that that's very hard. For a lot of people, you come across a passage like that and you think, oh, I just can't do it. I can't pronounce these names. I don't want to plow all the way through. This genealogy really doesn't matter to me. And let me remind you that it's not genealogies that don't matter. Your genealogy matters a lot, and a lot of folks are interested in it. It's other people's genealogies that we tend to get a little bored with. When you're reading them and hearing about them, it's kind of like having to look at somebody else's vacation pictures. It's not all that inspiring. But the ones that are contained in the Bible, pay attention to them. Pay attention to them. Because there are gold nuggets in there that you want to grab hold of. In fact, I oftentimes equate the reading of the biblical genealogies with panning for gold. If you've ever done that, you know that you could spend hour after hour after hour kneeling next to the creek, pulling out a little bit of dirt and water and sifting through it, throwing away the trash and then going back in and doing it again in the hopes of finding gold nuggets. Well, it works that way with the biblical genealogies. You will find the gold nuggets. Like this one in chapter 7. This is just kind of fun to say, a little gold nugget that's fun. Chapter 7, verse 12. The Shupites and Hupites were the descendants of Ur, and the Hushites the descendants of Ahur. 
That's just fun to say. In fact, when I read it back in the prayer room during our Proclaim the Word, I read it three times. That's how much fun it was. The Shupites and the Hupites were the descendants of Ur, and the Hushites, the descendants of Aher. I was actually kind of curious afterwards about who the Shupites and the Hupites were, so I did a little bit of study to see what I could find out. Apparently, they didn't leave much of a mark on the world. The only thing the Bible tells us is that one of the daughters of the Shupites married a son of Manasseh. That's all we know. And then they just fall off the page. Still, that was a fun nugget in the midst of all of those names. And then I found the real treasure. I had not seen this before or had not paid attention to it. It starts in verse 30 of chapter 7. Listen along with me. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishba, Ishvi, and Bariah. Their sister was Sarah. The sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel, who was the father of Birzath. Heber was the father of Japhlet, Shomer, and Hotham, and of their sister Shua. The sons of Japhlet, Pesach, Bimel, and Ashbeth. These were Japhlet's sons. The sons of Shomer, Ai, Roga, Huba, and Aram. The sons of his brother Helam, Zopha, Imna, Shalish, and Amal. The sons of Zopha, Sua, Harnifer, Shul, Beri, Imra, Bezer, Had, Shama, Shilshash, Ithran and Bera, the sons of Jether, Jephuna, Pispa, and Era, the sons of Ula, Era, Haniel, and Rizia. Now listen to this. This is good stuff right here. All these were the descendants of Asher, heads of families, choice men, brave warriors, and outstanding leaders. The number of men ready for battle as listed in their genealogy was 26,000. It was in verse 40 that I found myself thinking about the movie Crimson Tide. I could hear Gene Hackman and the chief of the boat, Cobb, reading that list together. It might have sounded like this. When the commander was listing out who these men were, he would have said, heads of families. And the chief would have said, heads of families, sir. Choice men, choice men. Brave warriors, brave warriors, sir and outstanding leaders, and I can just see Cobb standing there, outstanding, sir. That's who these men were, the sons of Asher. They were different than anybody else in this genealogy to be called out like this, given these four titles. These were unique men, the sons of Asher. I kind of found myself intrigued by them. I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could, and so the next day I started exploring who Asher was that I might understand who his sons were. Asher is a unique individual in the Bible. He is the eighth-born son of twelve, the son of Jacob. His name means happy. In the middle of a terribly dysfunctional family, the dysfunction was so bad in Jacob's home that the brothers actually sold one of their brothers into slavery. That's how bad it was broken. That's how bad things were turned upside down in their house. Everything was messed up. But Asher, Asher had a name that meant happy. And it seemed like he probably lived that type of a life. When you begin to study out who he was, you can see why. There was a period back in the book of Genesis, if you want to turn back there with me, where he received a blessing from his father that would have followed in line with the meaning of his name. Genesis chapter 49, verse 20. Jacob was about to die. He was blessing all of his sons. 
And this is the blessing that Asher received. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. By all appearances, Jacob said that Asher was going to live a prosperous life, and such a prosperous life that he would actually touch royalty. That was the blessing given to him by his dad. It follows closely with the blessing that Moses would pour out on their family. This one's found in Deuteronomy chapter 33, if you want to turn over there. Deuteronomy 33, verse 24. About Asher, he said, most blessed of sons is Asher. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him bathe his feet in oil. The bolts of your gates will be iron and bronze and your strength will equal your days. That's what Moses had to say about the descendants of Asher, about his family. They were different than all of the others. Most blessed are the sons of Asher. Well, there was something about them, something unique about the legacy that Asher had passed on that made him stand out among all of his other brothers and all of the other men at that time. And so did his sons. Unique stuff. The blessing is actually carried out when they move into the promised land, when they go into Canaan. The division of land was such that Asher would receive a section in the northern part of the kingdom, the region of Galilee. It was an agricultural area that today is absolutely gorgeous, just stunning to look at. The agriculture that comes out of it is enough to sustain the nation of Israel as well as the people around them. It is very productive. There were times when it was desolate. It had been trampled on during years and years and years of war, and it was left as basically a wasteland. But it is recovered today to what apparently was the glory of the days of Asher's receiving the land. It is so beautiful, actually, that one of its borders is right along the Mediterranean Sea. If you've ever been in the Mediterranean, you know that it is a beautiful body of water. If you've ever had the privilege of standing in it, Tina and I have, to stand in the waters of the Mediterranean, there's, there's nothing else like it. It is truly something. And that body of water borders the land of Asher that produces all of this. He was an outstanding man. Makes you wonder what in the world it was in his life that caused that. Well, Henry Blackaby says that it only takes two things for the ordinary to become extraordinary. So if you look at Asher's life, he was one of 12 sons, born into a large family, ordinary family, even with its dysfunction, but he rose above it. According to Blackaby, the two things that are required is a man and Almighty God and a covenant between the two of them. If you have a man with a covenant with Almighty God and that man honors that covenant, then the blessings are going to follow. You're going to see things that will last not only through his life, but for generations to come. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, would drive that point home with these words in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7. The righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are his children after him. A man and almighty God with a covenant that holds them together. Leads to blessings for generations and Asher's life proves it. Think of the four things that were said about his sons. They were the heads of their families. They were choice men. They were brave warriors. They were outstanding leaders. Listen to that again. This is the blessing that was poured out on Asher. They were the heads of their families. They were choice men. They were brave warriors. They were outstanding 
leaders. I want to take all four of those and pick them apart this morning as we go on through this message. Hang with me as we do this, and hopefully it's all going to make sense for you. Men, I want you to pay close attention, because there shouldn't be a man in this room that wouldn't like to have those four adjectives attached to your name. You're the head of your family. You're a choice man, a brave warrior, and an outstanding leader. Let's just look at that first one, heads of their families. If we were to take a poll in this room and ask the men, just the men, to tell us what it means to be the head of their family, 95% of the guys would say the exact same thing. That means I'm supposed to lead my wife in all the areas of intimacy, the emotional, the intellectual, the physical, the spiritual, and the financial. I'm supposed to lead her in a godly way, and I am supposed to lead my children. That's what it means to be the head of the family. That's what it means to accept the mantle of leadership that God has given. And there's scripture that would undergird that idea. Passages like this in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go to the New Testament together. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll start verse 22. Earlier in the spring, we spent a lot of time in this passage. I know it's familiar to a number of you, so listen again. Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now there's the God-given order of things. The husband is the head of his wife, but listen to how God says he's supposed to lead. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, Paul actually tells us what this is supposed to look like. It's a selfless love that gives itself up over and over and over again. And rather than a husband trying to get his needs met, he's busy trying to meet the needs of his wife. And when he does, she'll become radiant. The Bible says she will glow with that type of a love relationship. And it's not hard to understand why that works the way it does. Because Paul says, once we're doing that, we have helped our wife deal with the stains, wrinkles, and blemishes of her life. You've helped erase the stains, man. You've helped make the the blemishes go away. You've ironed out the wrinkles. And as a result of that, you can present her before Christ holy and blameless, radiant and glowing. There are a number of people today that would say a long marriage in the United States of America is a 50-year marriage. There are a lot of people, and I believe they're probably right, that would say it takes about 50 years to pull this off. This is a 50-year commitment to have that type of a marriage. So men set their sights on leading their wives in longevity, 50, 60 years. Well, then we we would find out that most guys would say it also means if I'm going to be the head of my family that I have to lead my children. And there are great passages of Scripture that undergird that as well, like this in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Following kind of along the same lines as what Paul said to the church in Ephesus, he says this to Colossae. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. 
Some translations of the Bible say, fathers do not exasperate your children or they will become discouraged. Well, the modern teaching of that, different than it was just even a few years ago, is to say, Father, step back and learn how to love each one of your children individually, that they can become who God designed them to be. That's part of being the head of your family, when you're able to see each individual need within the people that you have been entrusted with and love them accordingly. So Paul kind of comes at it from a different angle. He says, don't embitter them. Don't let them be discouraged. You figure out how to love them, encourage them, and train them up that they might become who they're supposed to be. Well, a lot of the dads in this room would say, yep, that's part of leading my family. I got to lead my wife. I got to lead my children. That's what it means to be the head of my family. Well, I might offer to you that if we stop there, and by the way, with the children issue, for a lot of people, they believe that's a 15 to 20 year commitment. That means that I have to get my kids strongly into their teenage years and then launch them and release them. Well, it's so much more than that. If all we have is that 50-year idea or the 15 to 20-year idea, we are missing out on what the Bible is really teaching about being the head of your family. Wonderful writer to men named Steve Farrar would teach that we have to at least double our vision into a hundred-year vision. In order to be counted the head of our families, it will require a 100 year vision. Some of the guys in here right now are saying, oh, Willie, are you kidding? I was kind of looking at the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, the Bible actually teaches this. It's not new to Farrar. He got it right out of Scripture. Let me take you to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Listen. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. Now here's where Farrar gets his hundred-year vision. You are to make sure that you are walking with God, that's leading yourself, that your family, direct family, is walking with God, that's your children, and then he takes it a step further and says, and their children after them. Three generations. According to his count and everybody else's count, that's a hundred years. You have to have a hundred year vision as you are investing in the leadership of your family if you really want to bear that title, heads of their families, the way the sons of Asher did. It requires us recognizing that we want to leave a legacy that will go on, not just after we're gone, but after our children are gone. That's what it means to be a son of Asher, to have that type of investment. Farrar would actually teach that that means that we have to make spiritual deposits of spiritual capital right now, early on, so that the dividends will pay out for years to come, a hundred years later. People are still being able to pick up the things that you put down. Dads, this matters. If you want to be the head of your family as a son of Asher was, then it requires a hundred-year vision. My family never got to meet their grandfathers. My kids didn't. Tina got to meet one of my granddads. I wish she had met the other one. He was, he was just a wonderful man. Love my grandpa, Allspaugh. My kids, though even though they never met either one of my grandfathers, they know the stories of their lives. They were sons of Asher that invested in us. 
They really were. That's a great legacy that is passed on even after they're gone. Hundred-year vision is what matters. Once we figure that out, then we're able to get into the second thing that the chronicler would call out about the sons of Asher. Not only were they the heads of their families, but if you remember from 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 40, they were also choice men. Choice men. Now, I wasn't exactly sure where I was going to go with that one as I was putting the message together, and I'll just be honest with you, moment of transparency, I found myself on the Texas A&M website. They have a program at Texas A&M called, are you ready for this, Meat Science. That's exactly what it's called. And it deals with the cuts of meat. When you butcher a steer, you butcher a bull, how you cut it up and how you determine what the choice cuts are and how you grade each of those cuts. I spent a lot of time looking at meat sciences and figuring out how you grade things like prime rib and the marbling and ribeye and tri-tip and prime rib cuts and all this other stuff. And I put the whole thing together, had a great illustration and said, yeah, I need something more than that. I need something more than Texas A&M to drive this point home. So I opened up my Bible and I found what choice men really look like. This is found in the book of Judges. Go with me to that book, would you? Judges chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 14. Now, there are a lot of details to this story that we don't have time to explore right now, so I'm just lifting an idea off the page. More than anything, that's what we're doing. To some extent, it's out of context, but what I really want you to see is the definition of choice men. Verse 14 of chapter 20. From their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns in addition to 700 chosen or choice men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen or choice men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That's a choice man. A choice man is one that is disciplined and dedicated to what he does. These men were warriors, They had spent enough time training that they could actually throw a rock at a rabbit and they would not miss. They were the best of the best. They were choice men. There are a lot of choice men in this room that have dedicated themselves to their occupations and they have disciplined themselves to become the best of the best. That's what choice men do. They make sure that they are ready whenever they are called upon. They make sure that they have done all of the work they're supposed to do. They have honed their skills. Choice men are dedicated to the job that is in front of them. And that means that when a crisis occurs, they are ready to respond. Choice men are men that respond to crisis. Now, we've done a a great disservice to the word crisis by equating it with tragedy. It is more than that. A crisis is a turning point. It's a decision that has to be made. A crisis can come solely by walking down a road and coming to a fork in that road, or not a fork, but a a T in that road, where you have to go right or left. Choice men will assemble all of the information that they need to make the right decision. Do I go right or do I go left? Choice men are the ones that you want to follow when you don't know where to go. 
because they have so honed their skills that they can make the right decisions in the right moments to do the right thing. There are a lot of different types of crisis in our world today. One of the biggest one is a crisis of belief. People are challenged with that over and over and over again. They have to decide, do I go to the right or do do I go to the left? What do I actually believe? Choice men make the right decisions. Choice men are willing to follow the things of God. Choice men are willing to be dedicated to the things that matter the most and they have honed their spiritual skills so that when a crisis of belief is put in front of them, they can respond accordingly. And that's a great response. Crisis of belief leads to salvation for a number of people. I was having a discussion this past week with a man about how difficult it is to turn the tide of a life where atheism has been the only thing that has governed that life. For a person that has said over and over and over again that there is no God, when they are confronted with their own mortality, that is a crisis of belief. Will I die in that belief or will I change directions and move into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Choice men make the right decisions. Choice men don't just hold on to their stubbornness and their own way of life. Choice men are teachable. Choice men men are the ones that are willing to change directions if need be. The sons of Asher were choice men. They really were. They were the heads of their family, and they were choice men. It's interesting to me that the chronicler would set these things up in such a way that it seems like they are progressive. We moved from them just solely being the heads of their families now into being the type of men that everybody else would want to follow. They were choice men. Well, that sets the stage for the third thing the chronicler had to say about them. If you're still in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, you can see it for yourself. He said, not only are they the heads of their family, but the sons of Asher were choice men and brave warriors. They were brave warriors. David was not a son of Asher, but he seemed to have all the characteristics of one. Many of us are familiar with the exploits of his life, and we know the details of his stories, but... Seems like maybe it, it's worth revisiting one of the most popular this morning. This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 22. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. They were not brave warriors. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Eliab was not a choice man, not at all. Now what have I done, said David, can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. 
What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been fighting men from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beast of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As Listen now, listen close. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Story goes on to say that he drew Goliath's sword, he cut off his head, and he took it back into the camp and eventually the city. But did you see what David did? When the time came, he ran to the battle line and he got some stones in the air. He went to war. That's what brave warriors do. Brave warriors that are choice men that are fighting on behalf of their family understand what that means. They are willing to run to the battle and get some stones in the air. Not only on their behalf, but on behalf of their wives and their children and their grandchildren. Choice men that are brave warriors in the heads of their families are fighting for their families all the time. Not just for the current generation, but for the generations to come. They are brave warriors, brave warriors. My grandfathers were brave warriors, and they fought when our country needed people to fight. They fought for their families, and they fought for the generations to come. They were the sons of Asher. There's a lot of people that fit in that same category, and others that want to, they just don't know how. Well, the chronicler is breaking it down for us. You need to be the head of your family, you need to be a choice man. You need to be a brave warrior. And then once you have those things figured out, look at the fourth thing. 
you become an outstanding leader. The chronicler put those four things together, the heads of their families, choice men, brave warriors, and outstanding leaders. Outstanding leaders are men that stand above everybody else. We all have people of different positions of leadership in our lives. We have teachers and coaches. We have mentors. We have fathers. We have grandfathers. We have bosses. We have other people that work above us all the time. They are the leaders of our lives. And every great once in a while, we find an outstanding one. They stand out above everybody else. And really, that should be the goal of every man. Just like these four things are the goal of every man, we ought to all be in a position to say, I want to be counted as an outstanding leader over those that have been entrusted to me. I want to stand out. The question is, how do you do that? Well, if you've worshipped with us long at all, you know that I believe the Bible has answers for everything, even this. This is found in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's traps. That's how you do it. Now that passage of scripture is directly tied to elders, overseers in the church. And those are the qualifications or the characteristics of the men that lead God's church. So we can't apply them in every facet to every leader, but what we can do is take the principle behind everything that was said and apply it to every leader. You have to stand out different than the world. You have to rise above all of the things that the world says are the standards that are necessary for leadership and apply the godly principles. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, when we started reading about the heads of families, what we found out was that those men simply had to be obedient to the Word of God and faithful to it. That's what made them the heads of their families, and those are the same characteristics that will make men today outstanding leaders. They are obedient to the Word of God, and they're faithful to it. That's all it takes. And in the process of that, it determines your reputation in the community in which you live. Outstanding leaders that are known by their faith rise above everyone else around them. They all do. The sons of Asher have pulled that off by choosing to follow the things of God. They are obedient to the word and they are faithful to what God has laid on their heart. And as a result of that, four things have been said about them. They are the heads of their family. They are choice men. They are brave warriors and they are outstanding leaders. And every man of God should long for the same. What a beautiful thing to have said about us. What a a wonderful thing, an aspiration to set our sights on achieving. I want to be counted among the sons of Asher. If you remember back when we were reading in the book of 1 Chronicles, I took you to what I said was just one of the, the fun nuggets and we read about the Shupites and the Hoopites. I even said then that 
there seemed to be just a small little mark that was left by the Shupites and the Hupites. They probably lived their lives and lived them well, and then they died and they were gone. The Shupites and the Hupites were people like we have around us all the time. There are a lot of Shupites and Hupites, even in the church. There are people that just want to live their life. There are men that just want to live their life and live it well and then be done. Well, that's Shupite and Hupite living. But the sons of Asher choose something different. They choose a legacy. They choose living in such a way that it will impact not only their life and the lives of their children, but their children's children. That's what it means to be a son of Asher. The question that's put in front of men all the time or should be put in front of men all the time, and it is on a passive level today, it's going to be a lot more aggressive than than it is on a typical day. Here's the question. Do you want to be a a Shupite and a Hupite? Or would you rather be a son of Asher? That's a question we have to face, we have to ask, and then it determines the course that we put our life on. If you want to be a Shupite and a Hoopite, then just live for yourself. If you want to be a Shupite and a Hoopite, you just do what you want to do. But if you want to be counted as a son of Asher, then become obedient and faithful to the things of God with a hundred-year vision to make sure that you're not only leaving a mark in this world, but you're leaving a mark in the lives of those that matter the most to you. You dedicate yourself to that and see what happens. I know I want to be counted among the sons of Asher. I know that that's where I want to be. Right now, it's an interesting time for me. I don't have grandchildren. I've been able to make an impact on the the lives of my wife and my children, but I don't have grandchildren. But you know what my wife and I are doing today? We're praying for those kids that we have yet to meet. And we're looking forward to the day that that we will be involved in their lives. We're looking forward to the time that we get to make that investment the way the sons of Asher would. And for me, that means being the head of my household with a hundred-year vision. That means I've got to be a choice man. That means at times, I'm going to have to be a brave warrior and an outstanding leader. And fellas, you need to do the same. So this morning, we're going to offer an invitation for men. We, uh, we usually don't just break down our invitation, but today we're going to. In fact, today it's so serious that I want to ask that you just stay in the auditorium. There's times when we offer an invitation that people think that's a, a reason to leave a little early. I'm going to ask you to stay. And fellas, particularly you, you stay. I'm going to invite you. The Lord's going to invite you. If you want to be counted among the sons of Asher, to come up to the front of the church. And then I'm going to ask two sons of Asher to pray for you. Jim England has been in this church for years and years and years and years. He is a son of Asher that has been the head of his family with a hundred-year vision for a long time. And he has applied that even in his walk with God. So I'm going to ask Jim to come and pray for the men of our church. And Bill Armstrong has counted that same way. He has been in this church for a long time, and he has lived as a son of Asher. He is the head of his family, not only of his wife and his children, but his grandchildren and today his great-grandchildren. Bill's vision has gone way beyond 100 years now. He's into his great-grandchildren. That's what the sons of Asher do. If you are interested in being counted among that number, not just a Shupite and a Hoopite, fellas, I invite you to come to the front of the church and allow these two men of God to pray for you. 
we're just going to invite you to come and stand up here. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you're thinking, gosh, I've already done it, well, no, you haven't. Come on up to the front. If you're young and thinking, I don't have a wife, I don't have children, well, that doesn't matter. You come on up to the front and you let the sons of Asher pray that you might join their ranks. This is a great privilege, fellas. It is a great privilege that requires that bold step from every one of us. Jim's going to lead and Bill's going to follow in this prayer. And and I want you, as you're listening to their words, to recognize that these two men are already sons of Asher and you can join their ranks. Jim, lead out. Heavenly Father, we just are grateful for the message that Phil has given to us this morning and for the vision that he has presented to all of us, especially the men of the congregation. And Lord, uh, we just ask your blessings upon each one that's come this morning that they would see the need for them to be the sons of Asher. They need to be the leaders in their homes, the leaders in so many different ways. We pray for them and ask, Lord, your blessings to fall upon each one. Sometimes, Lord, we fail, and sometimes we don't do the things that we should do. And yet, Lord, we are, we are proud to know that these men are men of God who love you and who want to do the best for themselves and their family. And we just pray that you bless their lives this day. In Jesus' name. Father God, I just... Uh like to echo Jim's prayers here and then add to the fact that we've got a lot of gentlemen up here in front that uh, recognize that uh, maybe we're falling short in a few places in our leadership. Lord, I just would pray that each one of us would be mindful and take this message we heard today home with us, not just for today today or tomorrow, but keep it in our lives, keep it alive in us. And that would be my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.